0: SECTION 24 OF VOLUME 1F OF HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS CAESAR TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY JIM DENISON history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one f section twenty four chapter sixty seven part three encouraged by this general fury the witnesses went still a step farther in their accusations and though both oates and bedloe had often declared that there was no other person of distinction whom they knew to be concerned in the plot they were now so audacious as to accuse the queen herself of entering into the design against the life of her husband the commons in an address to the king gave countenance to this scandalous accusation but the lords would not be prevailed with to join in the address it is here if anywhere that we may suspect the suggestions of the popular leaders to have had place the king it was well known bore no great affection to his consort and now more than ever when his brother and heir was so much hated had reason to be desirous of issue which might quiet the jealous fears of his people this very hatred which prevailed against the duke would much facilitate he knew any expedient that could be devised for the exclusion of that prince and nothing further seemed requisite for the king than to give way in this particular to the rage and fury of the nation but charles notwithstanding all allurements of pleasure or interest or safety had the generosity to protect his injured consort they think said he i have a mind to a new wife but for all that i will not see an innocent woman abused he immediately ordered Oates to be strictly confined seized his papers and dismissed his servants and this daring informer was obliged to make applications to parliament in order to recover his liberty during this agitation of men's minds the parliament gave new attention to the militia a circumstance which even during times of greatest tranquillity can never prudently be neglected they passed a bill by which it was enacted that a regular militia should be kept in arms during six weeks of the year and a third part of them do duty every fortnight of that time the popular leaders probably intended to make use of the general prejudices and even to turn the arms of the people against the prince but charles refused his assent to the bill and told the parliament that he would not were it for half an hour part so far with the power of the sword but if they would contrive any other bill for ordering the militia and still leave it in his power to assemble or dismiss them as he thought proper he would willingly give it the royal assent. The commons, dissatisfied with this negative, though the king had never before employed that prerogative, immediately voted that all the new levied forces should be disbanded. They passed a bill granting money for that purpose, but to show their extreme jealousy of the crown, besides appropriating the money by the strictest clauses, they ordered it to be paid, not into the exchequer, but into the chamber of london the lords demurred with regard to so extraordinary a clause which threw a violent reflection on the king's ministers and even on himself and by that means the act remained in suspense it was no wonder that the present ferment and credulity of the nation engaged men of infamous character and indigent circumstances to become informers when persons of rank and condition could be tempted to give in to that scandalous practice. Montague, the king's ambassador at Paris, had procured a seat in the lower house, and, without obtaining or asking the king's leave, he suddenly came over to England. Charles, suspecting his intention, ordered his papers to be seized. But Montague, who foresaw this measure, had taken care to secrete one paper— which he immediately laid before the House of Commons. It was a letter from the treasurer Danby, written in the beginning of the year, during the negotiations at Nemeguin for the general peace. Montague was there directed to make a demand of money from France, or, in other words, the king was willing secretly to sell his good offices to Louis, contrary to the general interest of the Confederates and even to those of his own kingdoms the letter among other particulars contains these words in case the conditions of peace shall be accepted the king expects to have six millions of livres a year for three years from the time that this agreement shall be signed between his majesty and the king of france because it will probably be two or three years before parliament will be in humour to give him any supplies after the making of any peace with france and the ambassador here has always agreed to that sum, but not for so long a time. Danby was so unwilling to engage in this negotiation that the king, to satisfy him, subjoined with his own hand these words, This letter is writ by my order, C.R. Montague, who revealed this secret correspondence, had even the baseness to sell his base treachery at a high price to the French monarch. The commons were inflamed with this intelligence against danby and carrying their suspicions further than the truth they concluded that the king had all along acted in concert with the french court and that every step which he had taken in conjunction with the allies had been illusory and deceitful desirous of getting to the bottom of so important a secret and being pushed by danby's numerous enemies they immediately voted an impeachment of high treason against that minister and sent up six articles to the house of peers these articles were that he had traitorously engrossed to himself regal power by giving instructions to his majesty's ambassadors without the participation of the secretaries of state or the privy council that he had traitorously endeavored to subvert the government and introduce arbitrary power and to that end had levied and continued an army, contrary to act of Parliament, that he had traitorously endeavored to alienate the affections of His Majesty's subjects by negotiating a disadvantageous peace with France, and procuring money for that purpose, that he was popishly affected, and had traitorously concealed, after he had noticed, the late horrid and bloody plot contrived by the papist against his majesty's person and government that he had wasted the king's treasure and that he had by indirect means obtained several exorbitant grants from the crown it is certain that the treasurer in giving instructions to an ambassador had exceeded the bounds of his office and as the genius of a monarchy strictly limited requires that the proper minister should be answerable for every abuse of power the commons, though they here advanced a new pretension, might justify themselves by the utility, and even necessity of it. But in other respects, their charge against Danby was very ill-grounded. That minister made it appear to the House of Lords, not only that Montague, the informer against him, had all along promoted the money negotiations with France, but that he himself was ever extremely averse to the interest of that crown which he esteemed pernicious to his master and to his country the french nation he said had always entertained as he was certainly informed the highest contempt both of the king's person and government his diligence he added in tracing and discovering the popish plot was generally known and if he had common sense not to say common honesty HE WOULD SURELY BE ANXIOUS TO PRESERVE THE LIFE OF A MASTER BY WHOM HE WAS SO MUCH FAVORED. HE HAD WASTED NO TREASURE, BECAUSE THERE WAS NO TREASURE TO waste, AND THOUGH HE HAD REASON TO BE GRATEFUL FOR THE KING'S BOUNTY, HE HAD MADE MORE MODERATE ACQUISITIONS THAN WERE GENERALLY IMAGINED, AND THAN OTHERS IN HIS OFFICE HAD OFTEN DONE, EVEN DURING A SHORTER ADMINISTRATION. The House of Peers plainly saw that, allowing all the charges of the Commons to be true, Danby's crimes fell not under the statute of Edward Third. and though the words treason and traitorously had been carefully inserted in several articles, this appellation could not change the nature of things, or subject him to the penalties annexed to that crime. They refused, therefore, to commit Danby upon this irregular charge. The commons insisted on their demand, and a great contest was likely to arise when the king, who had already seen sufficient instances of the ill humor of the parliament, thought proper to prorogue them. This prorogation was soon after followed by a dissolution, a desperate remedy in the present disposition of the nation. But the disease, it must be owned, the king had reason to esteem desperate. The utmost rage had been discovered by the commons on account of the popish plot, and their fury began already to point against the royal family, if not against the throne itself. The duke had been struck at several motions. The treasurer had been impeached. All supply had been refused, except on the most disagreeable conditions. Fears, jealousies, and antipathies were every day multiplying in Parliament and though the people were strongly infected with the same prejudices the king hoped that by dissolving the present cabals a set of men might be chosen more moderate in their pursuits and less tainted with the virulence of factions thus came to a period a parliament which had sitten during the whole course of this reign one year excepted. its conclusion was very different from its commencement Being elected during the joy and festivity of the restoration, it consisted almost entirely of royalists, who were disposed to support the crown by all the liberality which the habits of that age would permit. Alarmed by the alliance with France, they gradually withdrew their confidence from the king, and finding him still to persevere in a foreign interest, they proceeded to discover symptoms of the most refractory and most jealous disposition. The popish plot, pushed them beyond all bounds of moderation, and before their dissolution, they seemed to be treading fast in the footsteps of the last long Parliament, on whose conduct they threw at first such violent blame. In all their variations they had still followed the opinions and prejudices of the nation, and ever seemed to be more governed by humour and party views than by public interest, and more by public interest, than by any corrupt or private influence during the sitting of the parliament and after its prorogation and dissolution the trials of the pretended criminals were carried on and the courts of judicature places which if possible ought to be kept more pure from injustice than even national assemblies themselves were strongly infected with the same party rage and bigoted prejudices Coleman, the most obnoxious of the conspirators was first brought to his trial his letters were produced against him they contained as he himself confessed much indiscretion but unless so far as it is illegal to be a zealous catholic they seemed to prove nothing criminal much less treasonable against him gates and bedloe deposed that he had received a commission signed by the superior of the jesuits to be papal secretary of state and had consented to the poisoning shooting and stabbing of the king he had even according to oates's deposition advanced a guinea to promote those bloody purposes these wild stories were confounded with the projects contained in his letters and coleman received sentence of death the sentence was soon after executed upon him he suffered with calmness and constancy and to the last persisted in the strongest protestations of his innocence. Coleman's execution was succeeded by the trial of Father Ireland, who, it is pretended, had signed, together with fifty Jesuits, the great resolution of murdering the king. Grove and Pickering, who had undertaken to shoot him, were tried at the same time. The only witnesses against the prisoners were still Gates and Bedloe, ireland affirmed that he was in staffordshire all the month of august last a time when oates's evidence made him in london he proved his assertion by good evidence and would have proved it by undoubted had he not most iniquitously been debarred while in prison from all use of pen ink and paper and denied the liberty of sending for witnesses all these men before their arraignment were condemned in the opinion of the judges jury and spectators and to be a jesuit or even a catholic was of itself a sufficient proof of guilt the chief justice in particular gave sanction to all the narrow prejudices and bigoted fury of the populace instead of being counsel for the prisoners as his office required he pleaded the cause against them browbeat their witnesses and on every occasion represented their guilt as certain and uncontroverted he even went so far as publicly to affirm that the papists had not the same principles which protestants have and therefore were not entitled to that common credence which the principles and practices of the latter call for and when the jury brought in their verdict against the prisoners he said YOU HAVE DONE, GENTLEMEN, LIKE VERY GOOD SUBJECTS AND VERY GOOD CHRISTIANS, THAT IS TO SAY, LIKE VERY GOOD PROTESTANTS, AND NOW MUCH GOOD MAY THEIR THIRTY THOUSAND MASSES DO THEM, ALLUDING TO THE MASSES BY WHICH PICKERING WAS TO BE REWARDED FOR MURDERING THE KING. ALL THESE UNHAPPY MEN WENT TO EXECUTION, PROTESTING THEIR INNOCENCE, A CIRCUMSTANCE WHICH MADE NO IMPRESSION ON THE SPECTATORS. The opinion that the Jesuits allowed of lies and mental reservations for promoting a good cause was at this time so universally received that no credit was given to testimony delivered either by that order or by any of their disciples. It was forgotten that all the conspirators engaged in the gunpowder treason, and Garnet, the Jesuit among the rest, had freely on the scaffold made confession of their guilt. Though Bedloe had given information of Godfrey's murder, he still remained a single evidence against the persons accused, and all the allurements of profit and honor had not hitherto tempted any one to confirm the testimony of that informer. At last means were found to complete the legal evidence. One Prance, a silversmith and a Catholic, had been accused by Bedloe of being an accomplice in the murder and upon his denial, had been thrown into prison, loaded with heavy irons, and confined to the condemned hole, a place cold, dark, and full of nastiness. Such rigors were supposed to be exercised by orders from the secret committee of lords, particularly Shaftesbury and Buckingham, who, in examining the prisoners, usually employed, as it is said, and indeed sufficiently proved, threatenings and promises rigor and indulgence, and every art under pretense of extorting the truth from them. Prance had not courage to resist, but confessed himself an accomplice in Godfrey's murder. Being asked concerning the plot, he also thought proper to be acquainted with it, and conveyed some intelligence to the council. Among other absurd circumstances, he said that one Lefebvre bought a second-hand sword of him, because he knew not as he said what times were at hand and prance expressing some concern for poor tradesmen if such times came lefevre replied that it would be better for tradesmen if the catholic religion were restored and particularly that there would be more church work for silversmiths all this information with regard to the plot as well as the murder of godfrey prance solemnly retracted both before the king and the secret committee but being again thrown into prison he was induced by new terrors and new sufferings to confirm his first information and was now produced as a sufficient evidence hill green and barry were tried for godfrey's murder all of them men of low stations hill was servant to a physician the other two belonged to the popish chapel at somerset house it is needless to run over all the particulars of a long trial It will be sufficient to say that Bedloe's evidence and Prance's were in many circumstances totally irreconcilable, that both of them labored under unsurmountable difficulties, not to say gross absurdities, and that they were invalidated by contrary evidence, which is altogether convincing. But all was in vain. The prisoners were condemned and executed. They all denied their guilt at their execution— and as barry died a protestant this circumstance was regarded as very considerable but instead of its giving some check to the general credulity of the people men were only surprised that a protestant could be induced at his death to persist in so manifest a falsehood as the army could neither be kept up or disbanded without money the king how little hopes soever he could entertain of more compliance found himself obliged to summon a new parliament the blood already shed on account of the popish plot instead of satiating the people served only as an incentive to their fury and each conviction of a criminal was hitherto regarded as a new proof of those horrible designs imputed to the papists this election is perhaps the first in england which since the commencement of the monarchy had been carried on by a violent contest between the parties and where the court interested itself to a high degree in the choice of the national representatives but all its efforts were fruitless in opposition to the torrents of prejudices which prevailed religion liberty property even the lives of men were now supposed to be at stake and no security it was thought except in a vigilant parliament could be found against the impious and bloody conspirators. Were there any part of the nation to which the ferment, occasioned by the Popish plot, had not as yet propagated itself, the new elections, by interesting the whole people in public concerns, tended to diffuse it into the remotest corner, and the consternation, universally excited, proved an excellent engine for influencing the electors. All the zealots of the former parliament were rechosen; new ones were added. The Presbyterians, in particular, being transported with the most inveterate antipathy against Popery, were very active and very successful in the elections. That party, it is said, first began at this time the abuse of splitting their freeholds, in order to multiply votes and electors. By accounts which came from every part of England, it was concluded that the new representatives would if possible exceed the old in their refractory opposition to the court and furious persecution of the catholics the king was alarmed when he saw so dreadful a tempest arise from such small and unaccountable beginnings his life if gates and bedloe's information were true had been aimed at by the catholics even the duke's was in danger the higher therefore the rage mounted against popery the more should the nation have been reconciled to these princes in whom it appeared the church of rome reposed no confidence but there is a sophistry which attends all the passions especially those into which the populace enter men gave credit to the informers so far as concerned the guilt of the catholics but they still retained their old suspicions That these religionists were secretly favored by the king and had obtained the most entire ascendant over his brother charles had too much penetration not to see the danger to which the succession and even his own crown and dignity now stood exposed a numerous party he found was formed against him on the one hand composed of a populace so credulous from prejudice so blinded with religious antipathy as implicitly to believe the most palpable absurdities, and conducted, on the other hand, by leaders so little scrupulous as to endeavor by encouraging perjury, subornation, lies, impostures, and even by shedding innocent blood, to gratify their own furious ambition and subvert all legal authority. Roused from his lethargy by so eminent a peril, he began to exert that vigor of mind of which, on great occasions, he was not destitute. And without quitting in appearance his usual facility of temper, he collected an industry, firmness, and vigilance, of which he was believed altogether incapable. These qualities, joined to dexterity and prudence, conducted him happily through the many shoals which surrounded him. And he was at last able to make the storm fall on the heads of those who had blindly raised or artfully conducted it. End of section 24, chapter 67, part 3. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.